Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where you've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and consulting. My name is Alex. I am an MD pursuing an Oxford computer science PhD and a Harvard MBA. I'm interested in healthcare investing and innovation. Our guest today and part of our uh, physician investor and physician banker series is Dr. Alex Debilius. Alex is a managing partner of CVC Capital Partners in Germany. Previously, he served in a number of capacities at Goldman Sachs from 1993 to 2015, including as global co-chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs Germany, and worked as a consultant for McKinsey & Company, a global management consulting firm, where he was appointed partner in 1992. Before his career in business, Dr. Debilius was a surgeon at the University Clinic of Freiburg, Germany. Alex is also a chairman at the board of Breitling and a member of the board of CVC Capital Partners, Syntegon Technology, Iron Source Mobile, among others. Alex is an advisor to Chancellor Angela Merkel and a member of the German-American elite network, Atlantic Brook. So Alex, thank you so much for coming on our show, Physicians of the Beaten Path. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Perfect. So for those who may not know the full story of Alex Debilius, can you tell our audience a little bit about your childhood and why you chose to study medicine and what went into your decision-making process when you decided to leave the field? Okay, guys, if I try to answer that, we'll probably be done um, by this evening, six o'clock. But anyway, let me try to make it as short as possible. Sure. Um, you know, I grew up in a very rural area close to Munich in, um, in southern Bavaria, between uh, Munich and the Alps. And I had a very nice childhood there. Um, and, you know, I was kind of uh, lucky um, to not having moved school and do this and that. And so eventually, I ended up um, after uh, some some back and forth with my grades with a reasonably good uh, graduation from what we call high school or abitur in Germany. And, um, you know, at the times when I graduated, um, you know, the the entry to med school was uh, very uh, difficult. And one of the key items you had was to have uh, graduate with uh, from high school with a top grade and Luckily, I kind of was, I think, the second best in Bavaria uh, in this year. Uh, a bit lucky. It wasn't written for me. I, I can tell you a story later, but, uh, you know, anyway. And that basically um, led almost to a consideration. Shouldn't you study medicine? And, um, you know, I had uh, law and I had medicine in discussion and I applied for, for both. Um, but then, I, as I had as well in my my house, the high, high school graduation, I had focused a lot in biology and chemistry, and then it was somehow closer um, to my science base or, or what, what I knew about knowledge base. And they kind of answered me first, and so I um, studied, uh, went into med school in the University of Munich, and actually, I liked it a lot during the first uh, four years. Um, because in Germany, um, medical studies are have an, a preclinical phase in which you are doing a lot of chemistry, a lot of physics, uh, physiology, biochemistry, and then you have your first uh, big um, exam, and then all you start with pathology and going into more into the clinical side. So 
I did a reasonably good um, physicum, as we call it, you know, this uh, the exam after the preclinical time. And then, you know, I got a bit bored by the studies because it was, um, uh, you know, a lot uh, in groups, in hospitals, but you really hadn't gotten the key contact uh, to the patients. And I was interested very much in science in general. So I started to kind of work in parallel on my PhD. And I started a pretty um, comprehensive and difficult uh, experimental work um, dealing with, and I can tell you that because you are all med students, so you will understand with um, pilot cell transplantations in different animal models under uh, immunosuppression different regimes of immunosuppression because the question was there um, that, you know, as we all know by today, um, diabetes is as well autoimmunological disease. And the question was, if you would uh, transplant islet cells, or what tells you that these islet cells that you transplant? First, there's obviously a, a big discussion, how do you separate islet cells out of the pancreas? But then the second question, and uh, we, we basically implant them through the um, portal vein into the liver, um, to which extent is it at all uh, feasible or not feasible that the same autoimmunological process that uh, destroyed originally in the type 1 diabetes, the um, islet cells, is kind of attacking the transplanted islet cells as well. A lot of complications, I just tell you. I enjoyed that a lot. I did uh, a summa cum laude PhD, and in parallel, I studied medicine. I'm telling you that because that tells you at the end of the day how my medical career went to something completely different at the end. So I was there, I studied, and I had a, this great PhD. I spent a lot of time in the lab. I didn't spend a lot of time in the clinic. Um, and then I was there. I had uh, my medical degree. I was a quote-unquote physician, but I had barely seen any patients. So I asked my tutor, um, my professor, who I'd kind of done my PhD with, and said, you know, mm, now sending me into a clinic would be a bit of an issue because I haven't had that much operational experience. Yes, I've operated on, on puppies and, and rats and all of that, microsurgery and this and that, but really not a lot of clinical experience. And then my boss told me, you know, I'll, I'll send you to South Africa. I have a friend sure. there who is the head of the um, med school in uh, Johannesburg, and you can go there. So I went there and that was Professor Myberg. And I was at Professor Myberg's office and he told me I can do two things with you. Can stay here with me at med school at the University Hospital of the Witwatersrand, or I sent you to the Baraguan Hospital. Baraguan's hospital at the time was the largest uh, hospital in the Southern Hemisphere. You know, it was peak time of apartheid. Obviously, a lot of ethical issues around that, but we weren't as much aware of these issues as we would today. Black patients at the end of the day, white doctors, first-class medicine, but, you know, still you could argue is apartheid, it was apartheid, yeah? So it's something that we, we wouldn't kind of um, uh, live uh, these days in or accept these days. Uh, but it was for a medical education, a surgical education, it was first rate because I was, um, I was immediately um, uh, thrown into the, into the water, into the cold water. I had an excellent surgeon, Mr. Rabinovitz. I still remember him. He was an Israeli war surgeon and he was a fantastic uh, um, surgeon. And he basically um, adhered to the principle, uh, see it, do it, teach it. Yeah, I came there and, you know, during the first week I was uh, 
doing uh, independently chess trains. And then I was kind of uh, going into theater. A tremendously intense time. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, you were a member of a surgical unit there. You were all four days. You were 24 hours uh, responsible for um, all patients that were brought in. You kind of uh, admitted them. You went with them to theater and, and you kind of treated them, continued to treat them till they were discharged. And that was basically really a good experience. And I've seen, you know, I within, I was then at the end, I was there one year and then I uh, met Somebody I knew from Germany, from my uh, department of surgical research, where I did my PhD, who kind of went to, to um, um, Cape Town to the Grotesque Hospital in cardiac surgery, uh, Professor Reichert. And then I, he called me when he went uh, to become the successor of Professor Barnard. And he called me and said, you know, I'm going into uh, Cape Town. I know that you are in South Africa. Why don't you come and join me in uh, Cape Town? And then I, I went to Cape Town and entered um, cardiac surgery basically on the basis of my experience that I'd gained in, in the Borough Ground Hospital. Now you could self-critically say that uh, white doctors at the time made um, great experiences on the back of black patients. Uh, that's to a certain extent true. On the other hand, you know, the medical or the medicine that we provided for black patients at the time were within Southern Africa and I include uh, all other countries there was first rate. So it was better than in Zambia or in Botswana or in Rhodesia that by the time was already Zimbabwe. But, you know, out of today's, with today's perspective, you obviously, and I'm fully aware of sort of the ethical issues that were linked to it. And I've experienced a lot of things, but on the other hand, it was an experience that made me a reasonably good uh, surgeon. Now, why I'm telling that all, because I liked South Africa at the time, beautiful country. Okay, apartheid was an issue, but you know, uh, we had a lot of, uh, I had a lot of white colleagues from all over the world, from, from Syria, by the way, as well. And um, as well from, from the UK and Australia and a lot of um, uh, people from uh, Middle East. It became somewhat difficult, you know, to anticipate what's going to happen to South Africa. Would it be a revolution or not? And I enjoyed it a lot, nevertheless, and I took, hadn't I to go back to Germany, I probably would be still a medical doctor in, in South Africa. Um, then I, I had to go back to, to Germany for two reasons. Um, some had to do with my visa. Some had to do as well that I had a call to the army. So I had to join the, the army in, um, in Germany because I was only kind of for a certain period, was freed up from the army. At the time, we still had a mandatory military service in Germany. So I had, I had to follow the call. And there, the first time I'd done something completely different, I was, um, because I liked it at the time, I was um, um, parachuting. I was in a combat unit and, and had nothing to do really with, uh, with medicine. And at the time, I thought, well, there are well, probably different things that could be interesting apart from medicine. And I thought at a certain time, you know, perhaps I should stay at the army. But then I said, no, no, military is not really for me. And then I went back and I went into the um, University Hospital of Freiburg in the cardiac surgical department. Um, and there really my breakdown with medicine started because I was all of a sudden I was in a Western society medical university where you has, have a principle of hierarchy 
And I had a lot of experience as compared to a lot of my colleagues of the same age, practical experience. And nevertheless, I had the perspective for the next 10 years, nothing would change my life. I was um, um, responsible for a surgical unit, uh, female cardiac surgical unit. Um, you know, in the morning you were doing your ward round and you took your, your patient, you went uh, into theater and you kind of found out where you, where you were on the program. And then it was mostly, it was bypass wealth, bypass wealth. You kind of, um, if you were lucky and uh, you kind of put the, uh, the patient onto the machine, then the, the boss came that the bypass left the disaster, said, yeah, Debilius, you close, I have to go to the to, to lecture. And then you kind of tried your best, you brought your patient to intensive care. Um, and then you kind of uh, went uh, doing additional ward round and the whole thing, eight days a week or seven days a week, um, a limited chance to kind of um, move ahead quickly um, um, because you had a lot of people who were just older than you and are uh, were in the in the ranks ahead of you, and you could only become, you know, a sort of a chief surgeon or responsible or registrar or whatever you call it in your in your system, if the people ahead of you, age wise ahead of you, were basically um, have left the job, and that was the point where I then decided, okay. Let me find out if there is not anything else that I could do at least for one or the two years. Um, hence, I decided, okay, what's there? And then I went to one of my tutors. There was a, there is a, a, a kind of a, a program for quote unquote, not that I consider myself as such, but uh, for quote unquote highly gifted people who were smart. And you know, I had that from my school and from my studies and from my grades. And there was a tutor, and I went to this tutor because I liked him. He was a professor for, I think, um, um, chemistry, uh, chemistry. And I said to him, listen, I'm here in, in medicine. I see it's not moving. It's really boring. It's exhausting, but boring at the same time. Couldn't I do something else for at least one, two years to kind of um, find out what's, what else is there? And he said, yeah, why don't you try consulting? I had no idea what consulting was. Yeah, I thought engineering consulting or something like that. No, he said, no, there's consulting. That's kind of like management consulting and so on. So I went back to, to the university hospital, went into the medical library. At that time, no internet or library. And they had one business uh, magazine that was called Manager Magazine. That's kind of like a Forbes or something like that uh, in, the, in the U.S. And they had one issue which had um, a title about McKinsey, the ice cold elite. I thought, okay, that sounds interesting. Let me just apply. So I went home and I lived in the, in the nearby nurses quarter. Um, I had a small little flat um, with a home computer and I kind of typed an application full of um, spelling mistakes to McKinsey. And somehow they might have liked it, but in any way they invited me to interviews and I did my interviews. And somehow, and I really wondered because I had no idea about anything in business. I didn't know what a cash flow was. I didn't know what the difference between reserves and provisions, but most of the McKinsey partners can't uh, differentiate that even today. So, but they liked me. They kind of hired me. And so I did the last appendectomy on Wednesdays in the night shift on the emergency service. And then uh, next Monday, I started with McKinsey in uh, Switzerland at the time. They kind of rent, uh, the German office kind of gave me to Switzerland. I started to consult and help um, Sandos, nowadays called Novartis, in the restructuring of its head headquarter. 
But I have to tell you, I had no bloody clue what I was doing about, you know. And and, and it was really a sort of a, shows how what a, what an interesting uh, organization McKinsey is because they they took the risk of hiring somebody like me with kind of no business degree, no nothing. So I realized, however, that uh, I wouldn't survive quite long if, um, yeah, at McKinsey, you can still wing it for some time and you kind of can quote unquote bullshit your way through. Um, but uh, that wasn't kind of my favorite way of doing it. So I decided that I had to basically get some um, fast, uh, on a fast track learning curve. And I found an old friend of mine who was an assistant professor in um, management at the German university. And he always wanted to kind of learn skiing. I used to be a, a pretty ambitious um, skier, uh, was doing some competition racing. And I told him, listen, you know, we go over weekends, we go to uh, Kitzbühel nearby Munich or anywhere else. And during nights, you teach me economics. And um, during day, I teach you skiing. And that's how I basically learned my basics. And then, you know, from then on was onwards, uh, was pretty easy. I got uh, pretty quickly, uh, relatively fast, uh, promoted to partner at McKinsey after four and a half years. And then mm. just after I was made partner, I basically left McKinsey and uh, joined Goldman. Then I was 23 years with Goldman mm -hmm. in all sorts of different um, things. And then eventually I retired from Goldman. But uh, then it was still a bit boring. And then I kind of um, decided that I want to kind of re-engage in private equity, which was always the, the thing that interested me most while I was at Goldman, as I was doing as well, private equity just the other time, and um, joined CVC. So that's it. Long-winded mm -hmm. way to your first question. And probably we are now already at the end of the time. But I thought you should know what uh, my decision-making was and uh, why I decided and how it came that I left um, the field. Alex, thank you so much. And I was going to say, I think you're going to put me out of the job because you answered every single one of my questions really well. And you gave such a vivid description of life in the hospital, right? You said the principle of hierarchy and you talked about the rounds and then opening and then closing and then doing more rounds and then doing a 24-hour shift. It brought me back to my first two years <laughs> in, in surgical residency. So thank you for doing that. I did want to speak a little bit more about your career arc is obviously incredibly fascinating and inspiring. And, and looking back at your success can seem very linear and deliberate, but surely, as you laid out, there were a lot of challenges along the way. And I imagine commitment to excellence, emotional resilience, great deal of intrinsic motivation is required to do what you actually did. And people start at very different points, uh, or people start at same points in their life, but their trajectories can be massively different. And I'm wondering, like, what were one or two of the most important personal or circumstantial factors that you think propelled your career forward? And how did you actually navigate those challenges? You know, I've been asking myself many times, and, you know, if you look back and you, you can kind of really see some pivotal points, and some of these pivotal points uh, from in hindsight, just uh, seemed to be mere luck, you know, that I kind of found an article about McKinsey exactly in the mm. time that, uh, you know, I went uh, to Sandoz and this and that. On the other hand, a lot of things are luck or, but on the other hand, you could always say, uh, what are principles that kind of have driven me during my career and which I kind of tried after the fact that you always call it strategy. So I, I tell you my strategy, yeah? Mm -hmm. Despite it sometimes might not have been a, a strategy. But, you know, 
Number one is always trying to strive for excellence, whatever you do. If you are in school, if you're a surgeon, if you're in sports, you not always will, will be at the top 2%, but at least try and don't give up. That's what was my, my task. And don't jump too early. You know, there are a lot of people who have kind of found as well out of our profession as medical students who then kind of didn't like it for some time and then jumped quickly to something else and then didn't like it and jumped back again and this and that. So you should give yourself sufficient time. I'm always saying you should at least experience something three, four, five years to really kind of say, is that something where you can be excellent? Try to do it. And then kind of ask yourself if there is a next step in the same field or if you have to do something else. So, so first, excellent. Second, give yourself certain time windows. And I'm always thinking, I always plan my life in, in five-year buckets, you know. After five-year McKinsey or four and a half, or after five years medicine, I ask myself, is it really something I want to do for the rest of my life? I wasn't sure. So I said, you should try something else. After McKinsey five years, I said, you know, is it really something that's for you or shouldn't you, there be a bit more? And I said, no consulting, is it not forever? And then, and at Goldman, you know, I kind of, every five years I did the same question, but I kind of almost five times decided uh, that it was still very interesting and gave me a lot of opportunities. So I stayed there. And now it's the same with the CVCM. Now there are five years and I'm asking myself, yeah, is it fine? Yeah, it's fine. I'll do an, the next five years. So think in, in um, almost like an era analysis for yourself personally. Uh, a third, always try to associate yourself with um, great institutions who help, who have a certain guarantee that it is not a complete waste of time and help you to brand yourself a bit, you know? When I went, when I went into surgery, I didn't want to go to a small um, municipal hospital, but I wanted to be at big institutions who had a certain reputation, go to school for cardiac surgery, or University of uh, Hospital of Freiburg that's had as well a great institute, or McKinsey and not um, Joe Blow Consulting around the mm -hmm. corner, or Goldman Investment Banking, uh, or CVC in private equity as the largest uh, private health general partner in a mainstream private equity. With uh, So these are things where I think you can only learn and should go into highly, high, in excellent institutions. And then eventually what I looked as well is always sort of for an um, apprenticeship model. Yeah. Mm. So try to find individuals who you can directly in interaction learn from. So in medicine, it was my tutor in for my PhD work and Mr. Rabinowitz, who I still admire, he unfortunately died and he was politically and he was not at all admirable. He was an absolute racist, yeah? Um, but he was an excellent surgeon and taught me a lot. Um, then later at McKinsey, it was her penciler who kind of, I had a very close relationship. Then at, at Goldman, I still maintain uh, um, a, a good, great relationship to even the big guys there, Hank Paulson or Lloyd Blendenfein, but there mm. were as well sort of individuals in the German business, Paul Achleitner, who kind of actually hired me and whom I succeeded then at the end. So these were people who kind of um, were big mentors or friends. Now, obviously, 
now I'm getting into the age where I'm more a mentor to others. So I, I wouldn't say who is who is right now my mentor, but um, you know, at least friends and excellent people who kind of help and support you on the way. So that would be probably the four principles that uh, I tried to apply or distill out of, of my career path. But, you know, as I already said, don't underestimate uh, the power of being at the right time, at the right place and having having a bit of luck. Perfect. So Alex, thank you so much. And I was actually going to ask you about your five-year plan because you mentioned that to Handelsblatt and, and I just thought that was so interesting. So the next question I had is when you move on from place to place, let's say from surgery to McKinsey, then to Goldman, then to CVC, every, you know, let's say five years, have you noticed that you have to kind of start over and, and learn everything from scratch? Or I'm trying to understand, like, were there any traits that you learned in the medical world that you were able to transfer onto McKinsey and then vice versa? Uh, what, what are the things that docs in our audience, uh, what are the skills and knowledge base they can leverage if they actually decide to move uh, beyond clinical medicine? Uh, I think definitely my first step into uh, from medicine into McKinsey was the riskiest mm -hmm. um, because it was the, the biggest gap. And quite frankly, I originally, when I did it, I had, you know, kind of asked my boss in the University of uh, Hospital of Freiburg, Professor Fatman, um, that I only would go for a year. And after one year, I would come back and he said, yeah, perhaps not so bad, you know, and then you can help me as well by or in organizing my, my clinic a bit better right. and da, 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 da. And after a year, he called me and, and said, now, uh, Christmas, now it's time to come back. And I said, no, no, I, I, I stay um, because I liked it so much better. So I, I stayed. So um, I think a risk mitigation strategy is something um, that you learn as well to a certain extent, particularly in surgery, yeah, because there are certain, and it's, it's taking, particularly in, in, in cardiac surgery or something like that, and it's... Uh, uh, or, or as well, you, you, you take calculated risks. You have to take calculated risks, yeah? Mm -hmm. And that is something to deal with those risks and, and have always a, a certain safety network is something that will help you in doing these steps. Now, obviously, when I moved from McKinsey to Goldman, it was as well, it was lesser risk. And if moving from Goldman to uh, CVC, it basically was, mm. yeah, it was as well. So that, that's number one. Number two is be smart about the things. And I learned how you change. You know, I learned that when I came from South Africa to uh, Germany, but probably I didn't apply it in the best way because I had, you know, you have, you have to do a, a certain program of operations to get your, your um, final surgeon degree. Yeah. Mm. Not physician's degree, but uh, cardiac or surgeon degree. And I had a lot of this catalog operated already. The end. More than many people who were kind of more senior than me in the University of Freiburg because they hadn't had the experience. I had the patience. I had the experience. I was doing, you know, kind of um, all, all sorts of laparotomies and, you know, kind of only bones. Some bones had, uh, I, had, I had not done, but everything else for, for becoming a, a quote-unquote, I think you call it registrar, and the UK system calls it registrar in surgery. I had done already. And there I kind of was a bit dissatisfied with my ranking in medicine there because it was at, at the lower end. And mm -hmm. I tried to sometimes perhaps boast myself a bit. 
with that. So I, I realized, for example, in one night, there was a, a, a gunshot in the University of Hospital of Freiburg. Gunshots in Freiburg, very rare, big panic. Everybody kind of called, you know, gunshot, gunshot, gunshot. I was on, on first call. And gunshots I had done, you know, five, six during one night in uh, Baraguana. So I knew what to do. Yeah. And I kind of said the colleague who was then called, uh, he was he was kind of background um, there and he was kind of more senior. And he was kind of almost um, panicking, but had never seen in his career a, a, a gunshot. And I said, you know, don't worry, I'll do it. Yeah. And I've mm -hmm. done it. I've done perfect. But it didn't serve me well. Because this guy all of a sudden saw me as a threat mm. because I had some more experience. So next time, when I went from McKinsey to Goldman, I was one of the youngest and fastest partners at McKinsey. Yeah? Mm. I had a, a S-class Mercedes company car, two secretaries, and this and that. And I was, I was um, you know, known at least in the circles at the time of kind of making it very fast. But then I started at Goldman as an associate. Because I learned, I said, you know, you rather don't come with uh, with your chips on your shoulder and you you basically say, you know, I know it all, have it all seen. But it buys you much more sort of support in an organization if you kind of rather underplay your abilities and you are not kind of trying to enter at a higher level in an organization on the basis of what you have done before. Because if you are certain about your abilities, you'll make it anyway. I made it as well then in Goldman relatively quickly to partner there. But had I started as, I don't want to kind of an associate, I want to be in VP right away, you know, people have would have wondered. So they said, oh, you know, he was a partner at McKinsey and he joins as an associate, you know, we should support him. And, and that kind of helps you. So that's what I say. The second lesson from this transition is being deployed not in the smart way when I was kind of coming from South Africa to Freiburg, but I learned that and deployed it in a smarter way when I moved from uh, McKinsey to Goldman. Don't or rather undersell and overdeliver mm. than sort of try to kind of get credit for what you have done before. If you are if you're a good person, the credit will come to you anyway. And it's easier to kind of have the support of an organization as compared to work against an organization, mm. because every large organization can kind of stop you if they want to. And that's why it is really always important. How do you move in an organization and what you are able to show? So that's a, a second lesson. Yeah. The third lesson, um, and that's probably the most important one, but uh, probably not really sort of concrete or gravel, but if you are, in medicine, in emergency, in surgery, day in, day out, you are dealing with panic, with, uh, you know, the immediate threat of life, you know, life-threatening conditions. There is something which has to be fast, panic, you, somebody could die. That's really sort of going to the ex existential roots of a human being. If you then get into McKinsey and there are people who are panicking as well because the presentation isn't ready or mm -hmm. a number isn't, doesn't fit or whatever. But if you have experienced this other, more going to the existential root of life, panic, then you're very relaxed on mm -hmm. dealing 
with sort of uh, these problems and you're seeing the relativity of these problems, which helps you very often to be just much more considered and relaxed about the issues because you, you had been able to kind of, um, you know, I, I still remember when, when we had a stabbed heart and where the left ventricle was bleeding like crazy and you had to open without anesthesia and blah, 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 to try to rescue the life of this person with, with a hand on the heart to kind of mm. really, and here's somebody else, they're panicking because, you know, I don't know, a spreadsheet doesn't add to a hundred or whatever, and they're panicking in the same way. And you say, oh God, calm down. Nothing is going to happen. Nobody's going to die. Nothing. Let's look through it. We have time, da, 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 and you'll find it. And you can do it much more in a much more relaxed way and probably more efficient way than you are kind of up uh, sheer panic because something is not working. So this relativity, on one hand, life. On the other hand, life and the physical existence. And on the other hand, you know, sort of problems that are self-defined and man-made or, or by us made by us, basically, to kind of differentiate that. Those That gives you an incredible advantage to kind of, look more relaxed on things mm. and finding solutions. That's what how I experience it most. Yeah, Alex, that's absolutely fantastic advice. And, and you know, the strategic advice you gave when switching from one field to the next, I, I absolutely loved. And yeah, surgery does give you a perspective. I mean, you don't freak out when everyone around you is freaking out. The one thing I did want to ask really quickly is how did that one clinical mentor uh, reply when you decided not to come back? Because what our audience keeps telling us is that some of the hardest conversations they've ever had with people is with their clinical mentors. So I just wanted to get your perspective, how you handled that. Absolutely. This is something where you really feel as well to a certain extent bad, almost like because it's a very, you know, particularly in surgery and particularly if you like this apprenticeship model, you have a guy who kind of tells you, you know, I put you so often on the program, you know, whereas your colleagues, I didn't put them regardless if it's right or not. And you couldn't then say, yeah, but I wanted to have more because then they tell you, yeah, but this guy is kind of 36 while you are only 20. I was 20, 26 and the other was 36. Yeah. So, and then you say, I did that all for you. And now you are disappointing me and this and that. But I basically said, it's as open as I said it. I said, listen, this is my life. And, uh, you will not be very well served if you have somebody who uh, is uh, dissatisfied and at the end of the day will not um, perform to his full potential. And I told him then at the time, after I seen how much I enjoyed doing something else, then it was quite easy. Then there comes the argument, yeah, but you know, isn't that only sort of money-driven uh, unethical behavior where here you're kind of directly uh, saving lives, yeah? And there I had as well a pretty lengthy discussion at the time. I said, you know, as long as we believe in society and the Tayloristic principle of society, whatever somebody does uh, to kind of contribute to the well-being of society, regardless if he's on the conveyor belt or if he is in... Um, a priest, or if he is a, a surgeon, it all contributes to the well-being of society in a way. And and who are you to decide that um, you know a, 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 a suture on a on a wealth is more value than uh, you know somebody who is kind of stitching um, the seats of a, of a car on the on the belt of automotive manufacturing? It is a bit of a dicey discussion, I admit. Yeah, but 
I still am fundamentally convinced um, that you are not uh, for anything better if you are a surgeon as compared to being a management consultant as compared to somebody else. You know, you have just to live to your potential and what you're making out of it. You have decided to do this and I've decided to do that. And that um, that was then eventually a, a decision. And then eventually I told him, yeah, and now give me some more experience and perhaps one day I can help you to organize your hospital better. But that was more a bad excuse and I never talked to him again. And um, so th- that, that was it, yeah. No, I, 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 I understand it. it's, a, it's a difficult topic. I can right. easily understand why people then, particularly if the personal ties are very strong, are tempted uh, to but i just tell you guys all of everybody and you you are you have you are beyond the step but um and that's what i tested as well myself i said in in my last uh, year of surgery in the university hospital i always said myself have i been for 14 days in a row happy and satisfied what i'm doing and i had to honestly answer myself no i had perhaps one day this, but never. And I said, and the same test I will apply to every other job. I within the first year have 14 days in a row. Yes, there are as well in McKinsey and Goldman. There have been bad days, night shifts, worked a lot, uh, idiots. You know, some things that didn't go right. But have I had 14 days in a row where every day was just enthused and happy about what I'm doing? And then I checked that and I found out there were many 14 days periods in McKinsey and there were at, at Goldman and they obviously decline. And if they decline, you, you should do something else. But in, if they in the beginning aren't there, you should rather change and not, not stay there. And that, that was my, my position after, after a year in um, surgery at the German University Hospital. I love that. By the way, it doesn't have to do be. It doesn't have to be like that. If if we would change our medical education, particularly in Germany, as well the system, I think, um, and work a bit on the basis of performance and entrepreneurship more. I think you could um, you could really kind of get much more and much more satisfied medical doctors than as Mm -hmm. of today. Completely agreed. And, you know, the 14-day rule, that, that's the name of your next book, I think. So uh, it's, it's a very, very cool concept. And I absolutely yeah. love that. But I, for the sake of time, I want to pass it along to my colleague and co-host, Alex, who has a couple of questions. Take it away, Alex. Yeah, sure, sure. Thank you, Chad. And thank you so much, Alex. It's a fascinating discussion. And I certainly learned a lot from your perspective. And I think the point that you've mentioned around basically the ability to to practice in South Africa gave, gave you a lot of practical experience. And the point around when you're actually kind of faced with the high stress situations within the clinical context, that gives you a lot of thick skin to deal with irregular stressors in life. And I certainly remember that, like from my experience kind of practicing medicine in Syria, where as a student, I was doing a lot of the actual work, including kind of simple surgeries. So Alex, you mentioned one element around fast tracking the learning curve. And I was wondering, as you were transitioning from the different steps within your career, how did you approach learning? How did you fast track that learning? And I remember reading uh, Stephen Schwartzman's uh, latest book in, in which he talks about the need for organizations to reinvent themselves. But I think there is something to be said about the need for individuals to reinvent themselves. And I was wondering whether that is something that you came across as you kind of transitioned from being a medical doctor to a very successful businessman. 
be a, well, difficult to answer, but before I go to the question and in between, I can probably think about an answer giving you two responses to what you said earlier, you know, with regard to stress and every, I'm always wondering if I'm reading about now, you know, I don't know, Goldman was at first who kind of said, you know, our, our juniors, they work 80 hours, so they have to earn more money, yeah, because there's so much stress, you know, 80 hours in medicine, uh, all nighters, all shift, you know, that would have been a, a slow week if I had only 80 hours. I was doing more. I was doing every four days, 24 hours and not sleeping, but really. So anyway, so uh, physical stress and doing uh, long hours, you know, quite frankly, all investment bankers who complain, they never have really worked as a junior houseman in a surgical ward. So so that's one second on Schwartzman, you know, and his self-organization to kind of learn I had him uh, recently in for dinner in, in my house in Saint-Tropez, and he was organizing himself with a Tupperware um, because he was having his special diet. So very well organized, so with, with small boxes, he came there, and everybody else was having uh, dinner, and then he was kind of organizing himself in, in there. So I said, you know, that's probably... But he's greater than life, and he's a very interesting, fascinating person. So while telling you that and thinking, is there any way how you can learn? You know, at the end of at, at the first day, I think you the principle of reduction, yeah. Um, in the different fields, there is a lot of similar problems which i just meant what i just meant is risk management or kind of digesting a lot of data and correlate multi-dimensional issues having ability to deal with ambiguity you know influencing people and so on and so on but every every of these areas has its own language and despite the problems are almost the same for an outsider they are always kind of like completely different, completely complicated because they are kind of using a different language. There is the, the specific jargon in medicine. There's uh, consultants, there is investment bankers, there's private equity guys, and everybody tries to kind of almost differentiate themselves from somebody else with this, with the language where the underlying problems are the same. So what you should do, you should abstract from the language, try to kind of boil down to the problems and define sort of mechanisms and try to learn what are the typical problems. Yeah. And then you can resolve them. So, so that's, don't panic if you have the feeling you don't understand what they mean, because at the end in 99% of the cases it's a very simple problem, which is just sounding pretty complicated because it's kind of wrapped in completely different language. So learn the language, learn the jargon, try to understand what it means, and then eventually uh, the problem can be deconstructed and can be very easily solved in, because it's, it's not so, so complicated. Yes, there is something in surgery, there is very manual, that's completely different, that you cannot use in any of the other jobs. I, I could never use that, and that was the one, the thing that I missed the most, because it is to a certain extent very satisfying if you kind of have with your hands done something listen to music and if you had a nice anastomosis of small little vessels you know it's something like beautiful you can't do that in um, business but you know there is as well a certain beauty if you have a nice uh, spreadsheet and every kind of everything works out fine and it kind of 
works out there is as well a certain beauty of that. But, you know, that's not as manual as it is here. So that is something. Try to construct problems. Try to understand the meta problems. Try to learn the jargon that you have a full immersion into the, into the new field. And um, try to learn questions, but rather in a, what should I say? How should I express it? In a way that you're not seem completely dumb. Yeah. So um, if I had asked, despite I didn't know what a cash flow was, yeah, I probably would have, I would have uh, um, failed immediately. So I said, oh, they're talking about cash flow. What's a cash flow? So I, I, I learned during the night, I, I read a book and, you know, or cash flow. And then still I didn't know, fully understand. But the next day I was smart enough to ask some questions about, you know, isn't that cash flow so and so? And all of a sudden, said, oh my God. This is a medical doctor who kind of knows the, the terminus and, you know, uh, cash flow to equity or to entity or whatever, and has no clue, but applied it. And then by that you, application of this jargon, application of the questions, some fundamentals learned and read that helps you then to kind of uh, get into the things. Um, and, you know, then eventually that's what I mean is as well, learn it and apply it on the job while you're, while you're there. That is, I think, the best way how you can transition and accumulate necessary knowledge. Yeah, Alex, this is a fascinating perspective, and especially around kind of breaking down topics into levels of abstraction. And it's really interesting that that's actually... So I'm doing my PhD in computer science, basically artificial intelligence, and that's basically what AI algorithms yeah. do. Like they learn the abstract abstraction of problems. So yeah. it's a fascinating perspective. Alex, many of our listeners are medical students or uh basically attendings who want to venture off the beaten path. And you've mentioned previously that the market today is much more tolerant to individuals from an untraditional background. I remember when I was telling my dad that basically I'm going into banking and doing business school, he was saying, like, he's a medical doctor, he was saying, like, what are you going to do there? <laughs> he's one of the old school medical doctors. No, absolutely. Uh, but I can, <laughs> I can exactly. tell you, my, my mother, when, you know, I'm in a rural area and, you know, somehow I, they were very proud when she was went to the butchers and the butchers said, eh, how is your son doing? Yeah, he's made a doctor. Yeah, where is his surgery? Ah, great, great, great. And then one day she said, yeah, what's your son doing? Yeah, he, he went into uh, uh, management consulting. Huh? You know, did he fail or what? Was he kicked out? So, so it was really uh, the perception in society and particularly in, in, in more rural areas is unbelievable. As a medical doctor, you can't get better. Um, and if you then kind of move to business, it's almost like you kind of have have uh, stolen a car or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I 100% agree. And I think, Alec, from our previous conversations, it seems that mentors are a very important part of this transition. And you've talked about your mentors in clinical medicine and McKinsey and Goldman Sachs. So I was wondering if you can share with us what is your approach to building these strong mentorship relationships? Is there any lessons that we can learn from you there? Yeah, you know, being mentored and being a mentor myself to many people who if I hired in, in either McKinsey or Goldman or it's CVC, you know, my mentors always were people who worked with me, direct interrelation. And I think, and I learned that over time that there is as well, probably some value of having a mentor who is not really closely involved in your day-to-day -day work. Itself. So that's number one. Second, as a mentor, I'm always saying, if you want to do it, because there are mentorship programs in every organization, if you want to do it, rather 
take less mentees and do it right than kind of just accumulating mentees as a sort of an accolade how a good a mentor you are because it takes time. Yeah, it takes time, and it not only takes time in the interaction with your your mentee or between mentor and mentee, but it takes time as well to think about what are the specific problems that individual has. So I don't take in general more than three um, mentees, you know, to be really. And then the the last thing is expectation management on both sides, making sure what is somebody expecting. Sometimes, you know, I really felt that somebody who kind of wanted to have me as a mentor, they were really kind of only looking for somebody who could introduce them to a summer job at uh, either McKinsey, Goldman, uh, CVC, or somewhere else. And, you know, I'm happy if somebody wants to do that and, uh, for the right reason, fine. But that's not, for me, the essence of mentorship because that goes much more as a longer-term um, accompanying um, somebody on his way through the through the organization. And then I'm trying as well to kind of, but that's uh, the final point um, more recently, to kind of try to mentor people who come from diverse backgrounds, you know, um, diverse backgrounds, being it uh, with regard to uh, race or gender or, um, but as well uh, with regard to educational and social background. Alex, thank you very much. This is amazing insights. And I guess maybe shifting gears to, to private equity, we're going through massive transformation in the healthcare mm. industry. Everything is becoming mm. digital. Biotech is massively on the rise. Um, how do you view the future of private equity as an asset class, be it like from an LBO perspective or a growth equity? And do you view this asset class becoming more accessible to regular people? So I know there is platforms like Moonfair that are trying to democratize private equity. Mm. Yeah, you know, just look at Biontech and the and the two founders um, being medical doctors, having become um, sort of business builders, CEOs, co-CEOs um, uh, with a Turkish origin as coming into Germany. Uh, one is a, is a first generation higher education uh, medical doctor, and they wouldn't have been able to achieve that hadn't they sort of private equity-like uh, financial support in their first company, Ganymed, and then as well in the second company, supported by the Strungman brothers themselves, as well, um, you know, successful entrepreneurs having um, built uh, not only um, Durakimi, which they sold to American Cyanamide the first time, then they built Hexal, sold it to, to, to Sandoz on Novartis, it's a part of Sandoz today, and then kind of took their, their billions and kind of still had now this this massive success success obviously as well a bit of luck you know because uh, who could tell that um, they would uh, kind of immediately be able to shift to mrnr um, vaccination and for for corona anyway but having said that i think the interface or the the jump between medicine and business is clearly much closer and easier these days if you kind of, and we haven't discussed it, and I haven't, I've had that, um, to kind of venturing out into real sort of entrepreneurship, and um, but that's not so much from the medical, from the doctors, physician side, but more from the natural science, from the research side, into development of new uh, therapeutical access, and and that's the sort of the natural transgression from from medicine into business. And there, 
private equity and funds are very important, but mainly from the from the gross fund and from the venture capital uh, capital side. That's something I'm doing only um, sort of on a private basis. I've I've been more during my career now more being um, big companies, big transactions, and as well large uh, Main Street private private equity, um, big LBOs buyouts. Uh, you know, obviously. The role of private equity or capital is providing liquidity in the markets for corporate control. Venture capital is providing liquidity for scientific ideas um, and providing them with the ability to kind of being implemented. And hence, I think um, over the years, um, these it's as well a certain permanent disruption. And that is something that's good for our economy. That's why I think overall this uh, asset class is here to be. By the way, as well, from an economical perspective, it's the only asset class that over a protracted period of time could show that it provided better equity returns than uh, any sort of well-diversified or not so well-diversified portfolio in, in the market. Yeah, So that's why I think there is a, there's a supply and the demand side logic why uh, private equity in which form or strategy ever will continue to be there and will continue to grow. Alec, thank you very much for, for this perspective. And, and certainly, I mean, w- when we look at, at all, all the innovations, I think it, it's amazing to know how capital can play a really transformative role in, in kind of taking all these basic science innovations that are being developed in the universities and making them into really life-changing products. So Alex, I, I want to be respectful of your time. So uh, perhaps as the last question. Yeah. Um, so Alex, you've been in consulting, banking, and private equity, and all of these careers are highly demanding. Uh, they require excellence, uh, they require a lot of time, and they are stressful in many aspects. And within this context, burnout and mental health are real, and those can have major consequences if neglected. So this is a very general question, but I would love to get your thoughts on how you view creating a work-life balance within the context of the need to deliver excellence, the need to close the deal, the need to deliver very high results. Is it a factor about equipping oneself with the right tools and right attitude to manage the stress and to keep mental well-being? Or is it a factor of maybe reducing the hours? I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Well, you know, I had my old uh, mentor, Herbert Hensler, always telling us a one, it's a former head of McKinsey in, in Germany. He was always saying, a one-winged bird doesn't fly. Yeah. So um, if you have only the sort of uh, your professional wing, and then uh, you will fly in circles at max or you will kind of um, um, crash. Now, um, that's why I've always had one element always that was a sort of physical interest in sports. So basically trying to kind of do different things, not big things, but regularly. Yeah? Um, the in, day out, hour on hour, that, that helps you. And over the time, that's, that's better probably than kind of doing one day a marathon and then two months, nothing. So that was always what, what I liked. And obviously, there was a lot of enthusiasm and when you grow older, you know, the abilities kind of decline, but still kind of uh, keeping a, a, a mind on trying to do what you do again, somewhat not really competitive, but, you know, having some ambition that that's important. 
And the second thing, obviously, is or later then is a sort of a emotional and family life. Yeah. Now that's something where I, where I had a massive failure once, but then kind of got the corner, and I just can over the last yeah almost only almost ten years I really kind of had built a family again, and I just said I had a had that earlier probably more difficult, but that's definitely something that you can it gives you additional strength and help. Now for for somebody like you who's who's probably pretty junior, difficult to say, but after. If you're not married and you don't have a reasonable kind of family life after the age of 45, something is um, probably will be missing and will kind of contribute to what you say burnout or or frustration in your in your personal life. And again, that's the the second part of the second wing from my perspective. So physical exercise, physical workout in all different forms, being it skiing, biking, running, swimming, what have you. And the other thing is balanced um, family life. And then there is not a lot of time for anything else. No Netflix, <laughs> no no nothing. Yeah. No, I absolutely anyway. agree, Alex. This is fascinating insights and fascinating conversation. And yeah, I've, I've learned a lot from you. So thank you very much for the opportunity, really, to, to have this discussion with you. And I'm sure our audience will be thrilled to hear the episode and learn okay. from your experience. It was a pleasure a lot. And I wish you all the best. And let's try to make sure that the boundaries between medicine and business are kind of more uh, permeable, you know, you get more, how you call it, uh, that you can go th- permeable. Exactly. Yes. That's what yeah. the right word. Yeah. No, that's right. exactly our goal, Alex. And, and this was probably the most fascinating conversation we've had to date. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, no I was problem. frantically writing down notes, not even for the audience, just for myself. <laughs> so I appreciate you doing this. Okay. Excellent. All, All the right. best. Take, Take care, Alex. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Alex. Shad. That was such a fascinating conversation with Alex. I really like the point that he mentioned around, or the analogy that he made around the fact that a bird cannot fly with one wing. And I think we can take from that analogy that one wing can be your professional excellence, and the other wing could be the aspects that you do outside work. And I think this is important in our context and in the context of our podcast, because a lot of the jobs within the financial sector, for example, like private equity or banking or working at a hedge fund, it is very demanding. You can end up working 100 or 120 hours. You can end up pulling like all-nighters regularly. And that is fine because you're, you're doing that within the context of a specific deal, within the context of servicing a client, and it would happen. But the important thing to highlight is that this sort of a demanding job should not equate to poor mental health or poor mental well-being. I think the conversation with Alex highlighted that it is very important to be very proactive in taking the appropriate measures to maintain your well-being. For example, being active in physical sports, for example, having an interesting hobby and being really passionate and seeking excellence in that hobby outside work, or even uh, seeking and excellence in, in your family life. So I think it, the conversation was very insightful because I think my takeaway is that you can work these stressful jobs and you can work these highly demanding jobs 
while keeping a very good balance and taking very good care of your mental health and mental well-being. And I think this is so important, not only within the context of our podcast, but in the context of our time, especially after all the negative consequences that we've seen from the pandemic on mental health. So that was the main takeaway on my side. Over to you, Shad. Yeah, no, Alex, I I completely agree. Mental health is obviously so important and sort of the taboo and barriers surrounding mental health and the conversations associated with that have lifted recently as well and are lifting. And so it's very important to openly have a discussion about this. Another thing that's related to mental health is just having a robust understanding of whether or not you're enjoying what you're currently doing. In that aspect, Alex gave us a a very interesting rule that he uses on himself, which is the 14-day rule. So he looks back on the last 14 days of his life, whatever he's doing, whether in consulting or surgery or, or banking, and he asks himself, have I felt fulfilled and have I been happy doing what I've been doing in the last 14 days, every single day in the last 14 days? And if the answer to that question is no, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to change jobs. What that means is, You have to do a deep sense of self-reflection to figure out exactly why the answer to your question is no. And what is it that you can do to make that work more sustainable, more enjoyable, and give yourself some time to figure out whether or not you can actually improve in your current work environment. Now, if you can't, then it behooves you to look at opportunities either beyond the traditional clinical or research path or, or whatever you're doing, just to look at other places where you can look back and say, no, I I felt fulfilled and and impactful in in the last 14 days, every single day for the last 14 days. You don't have to use 14 days necessarily as a barometer. It can be a week, it can be a month uh, to give yourself a little bit more slack. But the general uh, abstraction from that advice that, that Alex gave us is just have a rule that you apply to yourself that gives you insight into whether or not you're enjoying your life. And if the answer to that is no, then do something about it. And so I really appreciated that aspect of insight from Alex as well. So again, that was such a fantastic episode and we'll have many more fantastic episodes down the line. You can join us next episode where we continue talking to very interesting folks uh, and medical doctors who are venturing off the beaten path and who have achieved success in different walks of life. And remember to follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. On Twitter, we're at P-O-T-B-P Podcast. And catch our latest episode on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at P-O-T-B-P See you next time.